John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And um, we've been going through the book of John. We've, we've studied about Nicodemus in chapter 3. Uh, we, we, we saw the woman at the well in John chapter 4. There's one more story in John chapter 4 about Jesus healing a man's son um, who was far away. And he said, this very hour your son is healed. And, and um, I wanted to cover that. But when we're doing Sunday mornings, I'm not going to go through every single verse uh, in our march through uh, the book of John. And the Lord put on my heart this morning as we begin chapter 5, he put on my heart this story about the lame and crippled man who was at the pool of Bethesda, or Bethsaida, and he had been there for 38 years. And um, interesting thing about this passage before we stand and read it is uh, some of you have uh, what are called New International Versions of the Bible, New American Standard, English Standard Version. Uh, some of you have King James, some of you have New King James. And people say, well, there's so many different... Bibles. Well, there's one Bible. There's two different manuscripts on which they base those Bibles. Um, a, a large handful, and it seems to be in popularity today, are what they call scriptures that were written from the Alexandrian text. The Alexandrian text was found in Alexandria, Egypt. It was a place of higher learning. A lot of Gnostics lived there. Um, it wasn't a real strong uh, stronghold of, uh, I guess, orthodoxy. Um, and then we have what is called the Masoretic Text. Uh, Masoretic Text is where we get the King James and the New King James Version. Um, folks say that the, the more accurate manuscript we possess is the Alexandrian Text because it's, it, it predates uh, the Masoretic Text, or at least the earliest manuscripts we possess. I still believe that the, the Masoretic Text is far more accurate, even though we have an earlier um, example of the Alexandrian Text. Um, the way I, I look at that is, um, as a history major, I remember I was at the uh, Lincoln Museum in Redlands, California, and I saw in the display uh, uh, Grant's, uh, General Grant's Bible, his field Bible. Beautifully preserved, amazing. Um, my daughter, Molly, loves to find old Bibles. And she said, Daddy, let's buy them. I said, it's worthless. You don't want to buy that. She said, but look how well-preserved it is. I said, you know why it's well-preserved? She says, why? I said, because the person who owned it never read it. A man whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that his life usually isn't. And Grant's Bible was well-preserved. And the man drank like a fish and smoked like a chimney. Uh, and he was caught up in all kinds of scandals and the like. Um, you, you look at uh, Stonewall Jackson's Bible. Um, he, he was a Confederate general. He was a Sunday school teacher. His Bible was dog-eared. You, you look at Lincoln's Bible, especially the book of Job, it was completely dog-eared. And... Um, the idea that a text is earlier and well-preserved is simply the fact that it probably sat on a shelf and was never read. The Masoretic text is the scriptures that have been held, especially through the Western world, for years. And uh, the reason why I share that is because you'll find a portion of John chapter 5 in the Masoretic text that you won't find in the Alexandrian text. Now, does that mean that it didn't exist? Well, we have early church fathers, Tertullian, uh, Christosom. They all commented on, on this portion of John chapter 5. But for sake of controversy, because some of you have the Alexandrian text, some of you have the Masoretic text, I'm going to teach the entirety of the passage from the New King James, which contains it, but I'm not going to dwell on that portion so as not to frustrate you. Okay? But we will cover the entirety of the text. So... 
Uh, we, we need some room, so if you can make some room for folks arriving later, if you've got a chair next to you in the middle, just kind of boop, just jump over. And Is that okay, Don? All right. Mary Poppins back there is going, have them scoot in, please. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Squeeze now. Let's do that Calvary Chapel squeeze. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. So lovely. All right, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. John chapter 5. <laughs> we're going to pick up at verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 15. After there, after there was a feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now this is where the other portion doesn't have. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Now this exists in both manuscripts. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> He's probably dancing going, too bad, too bad. <laughs> he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Uh, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and a multitude being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's our passage. Lord, lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit, and guide us and direct us. We pray your blessing. Just this idea that Jesus would say to the man, do you want to be made well? You want to be made whole? Lord, in this room today, we're, we're all struggling with something. We're all paralyzed by something, whether it be fear or doubt or worry, self-image, a marriage that's paralyzed our heart, a broken heart, visions of the past, hurts that have been perpetrated upon us and hurts that we perpetrated upon others. But here we are, God, and you're asking us this morning, do you want to be made well? And Lord, our response is similar to the lame man's. And God, through this passage, would you set us free? Would you make us well? Would you touch every heart, heal every hurt, according to your riches in Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Well, we don't know what feast this was. Scholars can uh, debate over what feast it is. It says after there was a feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Everything is up in Jerusalem because it's at elevation. You always go up to Jerusalem from any location in Israel. We don't know what feast it was. There's speculation on a number of feasts. I don't think it's very significant, at least from my studies, to focus on that portion of the text. Uh, it does say that there is in Jerusalem the sheep's gate, uh, by the sheep gate, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. 
Now, uh, this, this idea of the Sheep Gate, it still exists today, although it's uh, called the Lion's Gate. It's in the Muslim section of Jerusalem. It's called Lion's Gate. It's right near the, uh, the Temple Mount. Um, and, and in this, it, they call it the Lion's Gate uh, because uh, Suleiman, uh, his, his image was a lion, and it was built in the 11th century. Um, and and it, it's also known as the Sheep's Gate uh, because they traded sheep there. To this day, you'll see a Mercedes come up with a Bedouin. Uh, he'll get out of the back. It'll be like a Mercedes, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, suburban-like vehicle, and they'll open up the hatch and pull out the sheep, and it's, it's amazing. It's fascinating. It's one of the scarier places because you're usually going to find an armed contingent of Israeli guards or soldiers because it's right to the entrance of the the, uh, the Temple Mount, uh, which is occupied uh, by the Muslim community, and there's tension, as you know, in Israel over that, that aspect. But right when you walk through the Sheep's Gate or the Lion's Gate, and they also call it Stephen's Gate because that's where Stephen was supposedly martyred, uh, where he was stoned to death. But as you enter into the Sheep's Gate, immediately to the right, and some of you will get a chance to go with us next year to Israel if you'd like, immediately when you go through the Sheep's Gate on the right, just a little ways down, is one of the most beautiful places to me in all of Jerusalem. It's called St. Anne's Cathedral. This too was built in the 11th century over a 5th century uh, church, the foundation of it. But what's so fascinating about St. Anne's Cathedral is uh, you walk in, and there's St. Anne's Cathedral, and it was built right by the pools of Bethesda, and they've, they've been excavated, so you can see some of the columns, or, uh, the colonnades, there's five of them. You can see the excavations, and, and here is St. Anne's Cathedral, which is to commemorate this location and, and what occurred here. But what's fascinating about St. Anne's Cathedral is when you walk in, uh, the way it was designed in the 5th century is its acoustics are phenomenal. Everybody wants to take their group there and sing, and every time I go, we bring our group to sing. And I don't care if you sound like a crow when you sing in St. Anne's, you sound phenomenal. Uh, and, and what happens is you'll come in and there'll be a church group there and they'll be singing and you'll be looking at them going, come on, hurry up. We want to sing. Um, and then, then you get in there and other folks will join you and you began to sing acapella. And what happens is when you finish singing, the church continues to sing, meaning that the walls carry the sound from, from wall to wall. And it creates this, this just beautiful resonating sound that touches your heart. It doesn't matter, uh, how good of a singer you are. It's always so touching. And to me, I can imagine the Lord just looking at this location that's been there since the 11th century and the songs that have risen uh, to, to him through the faithful over the centuries has just got to be fascinating. It, it's really a, a lovely sight. It's one of my favorites to visit. Every time I walk in, it's peaceful, it's joyful. It's run by a, a French Catholic society, and the priest there is one of the most godly men I've ever met. He's just a tender man, and uh, it's, it's lovely. So immediately when you come out of St. Anne's Cathedral, to the right is this Pool of Bethesda. This is where this uh, lo- location occurred in, in uh, John chapter 5. And, um, and, and so what we have here is Jesus comes up to Jerusalem. He probably came through the Sheep's Gate. As he entered into Jerusalem, we know that Jesus walked there. Uh, it was Neil Armstrong who had taken a tour over all of Israel and he'd gone to Jerusalem, etc. And he finally just said, look, I've been told that Jesus purportedly was here. Jesus was purportedly there. I want to know a place where we know with absolute certainty that Jesus was. 
And they took him to the southern steps. Uh, this is where everyone entered. And those steps are still there, the original steps. And they've been excavated. And the person just stopped and said, Jesus stepped here. He says, you think walking on the moon special? He says, this is special. Uh, just a fascinating picture of, of, of how significant Jerusalem is. So here we have Jesus coming through the sheep's gate or the lion's gate or Suleiman's gate or Stephen's gate. And as he walks through... Uh, he comes to the pool at Bethesda. Now, this was a, a bathing area. It was a common area. Uh, if you can see pictures of it in the olden days, there were four walls that encompassed it. There was a portico. There were five pillars. People bathed there. They got their water there. Uh, it, it, a very peaceful location. And as he comes in, uh, there's a great multitude. And, and the reason why the multitude have gathered, it, it would... It, it, it was a place purported to be, and this is where we struggle with the text itself. It was a place purported to be that once a year, an angel would stir the waters up, and when the waters were stirred, the first one who got in was the one who got healed. Now, um, that's a tough one, because theologically, it's, it's hard to imagine God you know, playing a lottery with people. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to imagine this, and, and other scholars look at the text and even the Masoretic text and, and attribute it to this idea that it's an upwelling deep within this artesian well that creates the stirring of the waters. Whatever it was, uh, people believed it. They believed it. We've got places all over the world where uh, healing can occur, the magical waters here. When we were in Ephesus, um, we were at the place purported uh, by, the, by our Catholic brothers and sisters where they believe that, that Mary ascended into heaven, um, and, and this is where she lived out her last days, where the apostle John took care of her after Jesus was crucified. He said, uh, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother, and he took, he took her to Ephesus and cared for her. It's a lovely place, and the waters that come out of there, I remember my mother uh, it was a special time. Um, it was the last trip that we took um, where my mom and dad were together. My dad had Alzheimer's and, and he couldn't travel much anymore. And this was really the last trip. And um, she asked that we go along. So my wife and I went with Molly and we were taking care of dad while mom had a chance to travel with my father. And I remember getting up to Ephesus and my mother, I'd share with her the story about Jesus on the cross turning to John and saying, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And, 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 and you know, Joseph was off the scene. So Mary was a widow or we don't know what happened to Joseph. We assume that he died. And Jesus was the eldest and he was to take care of his mother. So he entrusted that responsibility to John. Now, John brings her to Ephesus, and if you can see in Ephesus, which is today modern-day Turkey, if you could see this location, you go, gosh, John, you did a really good job. You took good care of, of Mary. It was one of the most beautiful locations, covered in trees, overlooked the harbor, fascinating location. And Ephesus was a, just a, a decadent town, and they lived above the fray of it all. And um, my mother was walking through and all of a sudden, it was for her kind of a Christophany or an epiphany, this idea that the Lord just ministered to her, appeared to her, not visibly, but, but touched her heart. And, and I saw her filling up her bottles with water from Ephesus. I said, you know, it's like waters from the Lady of Fatima. It's, it's, people believe it to be healing in nature. People bring water from Jordan after they've been baptized. And I said, Mom, what are you doing? It's just water. She says, no, it's special water. I said, what's so special about it? 
And she says, this is water that comes from a location where God ministered to my heart. And I said, what do you mean? She said, "Um, I'm scared to death. I don't know how to take care of your father. And I don't know what I'm going to do without him. And I'm left with decisions that I don't want to make or even know if I can make. And I feel all alone. The man who's always been the breadwinner of my home, the man who's always been the leader of my home, is not going to be here. Mentally and even possibly physically. At that point, she didn't know she had cancer. And she thought she would outlive dad. And she said, but do you know what happened to me here? I said, no, mom, what happened? She said, the Lord told me he's going to take care of me. So this water's special to me. I didn't argue with her because it became special to me. And I say all that because you can read whatever you want into the text and dismiss it as though, you know, God doesn't do the lottery. But to the people that were there that didn't have any medical knowledge or understanding, to them it was at least hope. If the waters stir and I'm the first in, I can be healed. Now, it describes the multitude that were surrounded There were five porches, and of these five porches where the people sat by the water's edge, uh, it says there was a multitude of sick people. So you're talking tuberculosis, you're talking cancer, you're talking whatever. They're, they're, They're inundated with sickness. In addition, not only were they sick, there were blind people there. There were lame, which means they were crippled, paralyzed, um... And they were waiting for the moving of the water. The different words in the Greek mean some had atrophied, some were paralyzed, some had lost their limbs, um, some couldn't speak, paralysis, maybe some had had strokes, right side of their body wouldn't work. They, they didn't know how to, to define what had occurred, but they listed out just a number of ailments in the Greek writings that today we still use those in medical terms. And, and they are, the, the, the entire location is inundated with the sick. By the way, St. Anne's ended up becoming a very integral part of the Catholic Church of nurses throughout the world. And so here they are, they're waiting for the moving of the water. And then verse 4 is the controversial verse. It says, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. But we come down and, and we just, we bypass that. We just, just take, take verse four and look at it as Ephesus. Take verse four and look at it, the, Our Lady of Fatima. Take verse four and look at it, Waters from the Jordan. Uh, I'll leave you one more illustration in relation to it. I remember uh, there was um, uh, a woman who was a single mother and she was trying to raise her daughter to the best of her ability and they were struggling and, and was in San Jose. And we had a musical group come. Uh, her name was uh, Miranda, and she sang, and she's uh, just a phenomenal singer, and she sold her CDs. And this woman bought one of her CDs, and her and her daughter listened to it and listened to it and listened to it while they're getting for, ready for school. Just wonderful CD, very encouraging. And while they're listening to this CD, there's a long pause at the end of the CD, and then there's no sound. And, and out of nowhere, uh, one of the, the best songs on the album starts to be sung in Italian, And it's really weird. It's like there's no music. It's not doing anything. And all of a sudden it sparks up in Italian. And, and, uh, I didn't know that. And this woman called me and she said, she said, I have to talk to you. She was calling. She needed to talk to a minister. I said, what happened? She says, God spoke to us. I said, really? She said, yes, it was a miracle. 
I said, well, tell me, what, what, what was the miracle? She said, my favorite song on the album, Miranda, which has really ministered to me and my daughter and has touched us, we, 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 were, we were just worshiping the Lord and we, got, we were getting ready for school and then there was a pause and out of nowhere the CD player started singing in a foreign language the exact same song. We knew what it was. It was totally God speaking. It was, just, it was crazy. And she says, and I know God is ministering to us. I know he's going to take care of us. She's going on and on and on. And she said, what do you make of this? And I said, I said if I give you an explanation, is it going to change your heart for the way God's ministered to you? She says, no, nothing could do that. I said, okay. I said, Miranda's mother and father were missionaries in Italy. She speaks fluent Italian. She just put that at the end for her mom and dad. Very few people know it's there, and she didn't even list it. I said, does that change anything? She said, no, not at all. Now, for all of you, go, well, that's not a miracle. Well, it was a miracle to her. It touched her life. This is verse 4. Do with it as you will. But drop to verse 5, and let's see what God has to say to us. Now, a certain man was there with an infirmity of 38 years. I'm 50. That means at 12 years of age, I was crippled. And now I'm sitting by this pool for 38 years. Now, obviously, obviously this isn't a hoax. I don't know what happens in verse four. I don't know how the waters do what they do, but it's so apparent that healing occurs at least once a year when the waters are stirred that this guy has stuck it out for 38 years trying to get in 38 years. Now, I got to tell you, if this was a hoax, I would have figured it out in 38 years. I wouldn't have been suckered sitting around the pool for 38 years. Although there also is another explanation. For 38 years, he had family and friends carry him to the pool. For 38 years, he had a place where he'd sit, where he had his little can out and people would put coins in it. For 38 years, he had this ability to let people see that he was crippled and he was surrounded by people who understood that. People would take him in, take him back. People would feed him, bathe him. People who would care for him. This was his identity for 38 years. This is my corner. This is where I sit. This is what I do. Now, maybe there was a healing aspect to it. Maybe there wasn't. Maybe there was a, um, a communal aspect to it that people, this is where the cripple, the lame, the blind, the sick, this is where they hang out. But he'd been doing it for 38 years. And as he's sitting there for 38 years, waiting for the waters to stir to be able to get in, It says, Jesus saw him lying there, and Jesus knew, the scripture says in verse 6, that he'd already been in that condition a long time. Now, he either knew that because the Father had revealed it to him, or he could just tell by the atrophy of the man's muscles. When when your arms don't move through a neurological disorder, you you atrophy, and and the muscles deteriorate, and the the tendons tighten, and the fingers curl, and and the legs cripple, and the body becomes gaunt. And Jesus could just tell looking at him that this man had been adversely affected by whatever it was that that he was stricken with. As he's looking at this man, he's lying there. He knew already that he'd been in that condition a long time. And he says to him a telling statement. He says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Now this is where we begin our message. Because you look around the room and, and we attend church on a Sunday. And I have to tell you, you guys look resplendent. You dress up, you look nice, you, you, you put on those clothes that you feel comfortable in public wearing, you take time to do your hair, and somebody hugged me and said, you smell good, because I, I, I don't spray myself with cologne except for Sundays, because I do a lot of hugging, and I just don't want to torture people. <laughs> and you see impressive people dressed in fine clothes, smelling good. But you know what you don't see on a Sunday is the hurt. It's evident. Everybody's got it. 
A lot of pain in the room. Imagine there was an argument last night between a husband and a wife. Imagine there's some parents who are struggling with their kids' waywardness. Imagine there's somebody in the room right now struggling with an addiction. Some of you this week heard the word cancer. Diagnosed with something. Your business is failing. Your finances are low or non-existent. And then go through the room and everybody's got a story and it's, it's heartbreaking. And I think about my competitor, Ed Jones. He walked 9,000 homes at 84 years of age. I mean, that was a, the most Herculean effort imaginable. And I told Brett, I said, I struggle walking homes because I, I, I struggle going to a door where I need something from somebody. Now, as a councilman, I have no problem going door to door because I want to go now to give them something. Behind every door is a ministry to me. And it's, it's almost like every door you open, your heart breaks. Your heart breaks. You hear the struggles. And last night I was at a gas station at 9.30 at night with a man who, who's just struggling to keep his family fed. He's, he's on his last leg. He's got this, this invention he, that God's given him. He, he's, and it's fascinating. But he doesn't know what he's going to do on Wednesday when he's evicted. I mean, this, is, this, is, this is the hurt in the room. Everybody's got it. And there are those of us that maybe have lesser hurts. They don't seem small to you, but they may be small to us. You may have a boring job. Maybe there's a, a student in the room that's gotten a poor grade and just feels overwhelmed or uh, a friend or a parent who's unresponsive and you're struggling with that relationship aspect. Uh, the stories can go on and on. There's the lonely, the dying, the discouraged, the exhausted. We're, we're all here. We're all here. 11 Matthew 11 Jesus says in verses 28 through 30, he says, come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It doesn't say that Jesus is gonna resolve every issue this morning. He said, you'll have trouble in this world. We live in a fallen world. In some cases, like with Job, Job was, was plagued with a disease not because he was unrighteous or because he was a sinner, but because he was a righteous man. That's the oldest book in the Bible. God uses all things together for good, even disease. The scriptures say give thanks in all things, not for, but in all things, because he uses them together for good. In some cases, you'll have a person who's miraculously healed and another person who isn't. The one who isn't doesn't mean he's unrighteous. It just means that God is using it in a different way. I wish he had cured my mother of cancer. I wish the doctors hadn't made a mistake. I wish she was here. I wish I could have told her. And I wish I could have rejoiced with her about this election. But she would have been the most excited of all. But God still used it. She's still precious. She's still ministered. It's still profound. I'm here to tell you God, God can resolve all of our problems, but sometimes he doesn't. And the problems he uses together for good. Some he he resolves immediately, others he allows to continue so that we can endure the difficulty and triumph over it and find a lesson in the midst of it. When you're in the midst of a trial, you don't ask God why. You ask him what? Not why are you doing this? What are you trying to teach me? What is it you want me to understand? God, you're good, I know that. What do you want me to learn from this? 
And then we come to this place where this man is ailed and Jesus says, do you want to be made well? He probably had very little sense of self-worth. He was unable to walk. He was a burden to others. Can you imagine that? Having to be dependent on someone else. What that does for your self-worth. There's nothing more embarrassing than having to have someone care for you. Remember when I had back surgery? I'm young. I was in my early 30s. The nurse had to come in and assist me. Humiliating. Some people live with that every day. Jesus had pity on him. He healed him. It's one of those few times in scriptures where Jesus healed somebody who didn't even ask him to. I I wrote this down. Let's see how Jesus motivated this man to become a candidate for healing. Because I believe the same things are necessary today. This is the question that I posed to myself and I posed to you. What was it? What was it that motivated this man to become a candidate for healing? And I, I, I thought of this very first one. Jesus asked him the question, do you want to be made well? So the man himself, like all of us in the room, whatever our ailment is, whatever our hurt is, let me ask you this. What do you want? What do you want? Yes, we know you're hurt. I am too. What do you want? You want to be made well? You have to identify what it is you want. Jesus looked at the man and says, do you want to be made well? Is this what you want? You've been here 38 years. Is this what you want? He had to encourage the man to identify what he wanted in verse 8. When Jesus saw him lying and he learned that he'd been there in that condition a long time, he asked him, do you want to be made well? It was a very direct question. It sounds like an absurd question, yes? Do you want to be made well? You know, you're starving. Do you want food? You just came out of the desert and you haven't drinking in three days. Do you want some water? Almost seems like an absurd question. Does a man want to be made well? Everyone together. It does sound like an absurd question, but you know what? It was a valid question. It was a very valid question. There are people who, if they're given an opportunity, they might actually choose to remain sick. psychologists in our room know that. In their condition that they're in, they're free from some unpleasant responsibilities. I don't have to work. I get a check every month. My disability is my addiction. I get a check every month. No. No, I don't want to be made well. I have to go and deal with the hassles of work. I have to deal with the hassles of employment. I have to deal with the hassles of a boss. I'm lonely. Do you want to be married? Well, no. I just don't want the responsibility of being married. Unpleasant responsibilities of being made whole. You can manipulate people when you're sick. Can you get that for me, please? You punish people by making them feel guilty. Well, this just may be my last day here. I am the worst sick person on the planet. 
I don't talk. I, I, I internalize. I just, can I get you something? Just go away. You know, I've been with people just, they milk it. You're like, okay, let me go get that for you. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh, you're irritating. <laughs> Lord bless you. <laughs> Dave, Dave Reaver uh, written a lot of books. He was a Vietnam veteran. It, his face had been blown apart. He was severely um, maimed uh, in Vietnam. He tells the story of a young man in the 1960s who didn't want to be drafted. I know this is graphic, but it's a true story. He pulled out all of his teeth so he wouldn't be drafted. And when he, when he got to the induction board, he was 4F. They didn't let him in because he had flat feet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, where were we? You know, Jesus is saying to the man, do you want to be made well? And, and, and there's a lot to that question. Because Jesus would say, you have friends who bring you here every day. You know that's going to stop. And uh, you've developed friendships with them. That's all going to change. It's all developed around your disability. If I heal you, there's going to be a complete reversal of your life. You'll be expected to get a job. And to relate to people on a different basis. You're not going to be a provider. You're going to have responsibilities. Are you ready for that change? Do you really want to be made well? People struggle with that. There's, there's something to be said for having a disability. Something to be said for not wanting change in your life. So the question has to be, identify, really, what do you want? Do you really want to be made well? Because if we're going to see a healing this morning, we have to ask that question, do you want to be made well? Come unto me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. The first step in gaining something is to want it. You gotta want it. Not gonna be easy, but do you want it? It may not be the wave of Jesus' hands, and, and the healing in your life is gonna require struggle, it's gonna require responsibility, it's gonna require denial, it's gonna require effort. Do you wanna be made well? You 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 can be, but do you wanna be made well? Minerth Meyer is a clinic that uh, psycholo psychologist clinic, and and uh, they wrote a book called Happiness is a Choice. And they said, as psychiatrists, we cringe. We cringe whenever patients use the word, I can't. Any good psychiatrist knows that I can't is merely a lame excuse. We insist that our patients stop saying can't and say won't. They need to see what they're really doing so that we make them face up to it by repeating, I just won't get along with my wife. My husband and I won't communicate. I won't discipline my kids the way I should. I won't stop gossiping. And they wrote, when they change their can'ts to won'ts, they stop avoiding the truth and start facing the reality. We have to determine what we really want. And be careful. Philippians 4.13 is a scary verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do that. No, 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 no. You won't do it. 
I can't stop drinking. No, 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 no. You won't stop drinking. You don't want to stop drinking. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? You have to identify this. You've got to come to this place if you're going to experience John 5. All of us. We're all in the same boat. Not I can't. If you're going to use that from now on as I won't. I can't get a job. I won't get a job. The other thing, we identify what, Jesus wanted him to identify what he wanted, but the other thing, and there's, there's three more, and I'll be brief. I've got 25 minutes. Hang in there. <laughs> and this is a doozy. If you want to be made well, you've got to stop blaming others. Do you want to be made well? Then quit blaming others for your problem. The water said that when an angel would stir it or whatever it was, that the first person in would, would find healing. This disturbance would be called, it would bubble up, and, and this is the way they'd approach it. And Jesus said, do you want to be made well? In verse 7, the man's reply, listen, he said, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I just, I, I can't do it. Everybody's in the way. And nobody's even willing to carry me. Pastor, you don't care. This church doesn't care. That may be true. At times. Because we're just as fleshly as you are. I was thinking of starting a ministry called IDC Ministries. I don't care. Hello, thanks for calling IDC. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> Please leave a message. <laughs> Everybody gets to that place in our flesh. You know how you learn to care? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's I won't care. I can care if I ask Christ to give me his heart. My favorite was the first phone number I memorized when I came here. 818-991-8040. What's that? Calvary Community Church. Hi, um, I'm in the Motel 6 and I can't seem to make the payment. Oh yeah, you want to call 818-991-8040. What's that? That's Calvary Community. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, so you're going to leave the church because pastor's cruel. I just knew that they had a... a a segment of their fellowship that could help. They had that facility. We were small and didn't have the ability. Now we, we minister deeply. But the idea is quit blaming others. You know why people leave the church? Most of the time it's because the message has hit their heart and they have to deal with an issue in their life that they don't want to deal with. So everybody else is the problem, including the church or your neighbors or your family and you sit with somebody long enough, you can see the pattern that everybody else is responsible for why you're miserable. That one hurt, I guess. Hurt me. I, I'm feeling it. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. And when I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. What did Adam say when the Lord confronted him? The woman! 
And then they looks to Eve, it was the snake. <laughs> Moses comes down off the mountain after he's met with the Lord and he comes down and he, he, he sees all these, he sees Aaron and all the people worshiping a golden calf. He goes, what have you done? Aaron's like, um, the people pressured me to do something since you were gone so long, Moses. <laughs> they wanted gods like the Canaanites and I just, I just threw their jewelry into the fire and out came the calf. It, Blame the people, blame Moses for taking so long. Blame the Canaanites, blame the fire. But don't blame me. We have to remember that we are the issue. People do the same thing today. I'd stop drinking if my wife would quit nagging me. I'd work harder, but nobody appreciates my efforts. <laughs> Kids, I'd get better grades if the teacher liked me. <laughs> Listen, I, I, and I don't make light of this. I know a lot of people in this room got gypped when it comes to parents. You don't get to pick the parents you get in this world. Some of you guys got gypped. Abusive, manipulative, they beat you, they molested you. I get that. But that's not your excuse to be a bad parent. You don't get to pick the parents you get in this world, but you can pick the kind of parent you're gonna be. Somebody molested you, that doesn't make you qualified to molest. That's your choice. You know, I think about Churchill and Reagan, two of the greatest leaders of their lifetime and still echo from the halls of history. I, I, I walked into the campaign office during the election on, on my son's birthday, I, I, and the gift I gave him on his 13th birthday was my... My, my autograph where it says, best wishes, Robert McCoy, Ronald Reagan. I gave it to Michael as a gift. I said, this is for you. We walked in. Nobody wanted to talk to me. They all wanted to see the signature of Ronald Reagan. He was more impressive dead than I was present in the room. And I was running for office and they were making calls for me. They wanted to see Reagan's signature because from the grave, the power of this man's life spoke. And I want to tell you something about Ronald Reagan and Winston Churchill. People say, I had bad parents. That's why I can't achieve. Nobody had worse parents. Nobody had worse parents than Winston Churchill. His wife, excuse me, his mother was the worst woman on the planet. His father called him retarded. He was, he was 40 feet from the school he attended and he wouldn't even go over and say hello to his son. He never even said, I love you, and he wouldn't hug him. His mother was awful. And he never allowed that to affect his life. He didn't blame anyone else. Reagan, his dad was the town drunk. Reagan had to drag him in at 10 years of age out of the snow so he wouldn't freeze to death. They, they lived in, in nine different houses because a man couldn't hold a job. Yeah, I get it. But if you want to be made well, then you have to quit blaming others. 
I love this illustration. King William of Potsdam once visited a prison in England and every prisoner brought before him claimed to be innocent and pleaded for a pardon except for one man who admitted his guilt. King William said to the warden, get this man out of prison before he corrupts all these innocent men. We have a difficult time saying I'm responsible. In a day and age where we don't take personal responsibility, the government's at fault, the church is at fault, my family's at fault, my parents are at fault, society's at fault, everybody's at fault. I don't have, I, 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 this isn't my problem, it's, it's a disease, I've been plagued with it. I, and everybody's a victim. Everybody's a victim. We blame heredity, we blame environment, we blame circumstances, we blame everything and everyone except ourselves. Yet what the Lord wants us to do is accept responsibility for our own behavior. Romans 14, 12 says, each of us will give an account to, of himself to God. You're not going to be able to fake this one, you're not going to be able to lie through it or convince others otherwise. The third thing that we have to keep in mind if we want to be made well is we have to put forth an effort. We have to put forth an effort. Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Pray for a garden, pick up a hoe. Pray as though it depends on God, and work as though it depends on you. Get up, put forth an effort. I can't get a job. What'd you do today? I watched Oprah, and Dr. Phil, and... Did you make any calls? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's the government. California's imploding. What are you doing about it? Oh, I've given up on politics. Then quit complaining. Because you don't want to be made well and you don't want the state to be made well. You don't want to put forth the effort. You don't want to pick up your mat. You don't want to walk. You don't want to get up. You just want to wait for the check to arrive. You want to wait for someone to carry you somewhere. You want somebody else to tend to you. 38 years he sat there waiting for someone to drag him in. Jesus says, you want to be made well. What do you want? Because if that's really what you want, then the first thing you got to do is quit blaming others. And the second thing you need to do is put forth an effort. I'm a drug addict. I just can't get over it. Well, it's going to require some cold sweats. Listen, I know what it's like to go through withdrawals. It's going to require hellacious times. And the, and the times that you equated with, with marinating on your opiates, uh, and, 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 and you're going to get some stress in your life, you're going to want to go back to it, and you're going to white-knuckle it, and you're going to cry out to God, and in your weakness, his strength will be made perfect. But it's going to require an effort. You have to say no and say, God, help me. You have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. It requires effort. Mom and dad aren't going to do it for you. You can run back and they're going to give you some money or they're going to do this for you and, and then you're going to spend it and waste it. Do you want to be made well? Quit blaming them and using them and make an effort. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. He looked at the man. He says, take up your mat. Get up. Pick up your mat. Walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat. He walked. The minute he made an effort. Jesus requires effort. People were healed, not, not always, but often. The 10 lepers, Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. The man with a withered hand, he said, stretch it forth. 
Jesus with the blind man put spit on and, and, and mud, and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he did. And these are the pictures that we see in relation to the text. Let me find my place here. Here we go. Almost finished. 14 minutes. Hang in there. Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. If you really want to be made whole, if you really want to be made well, you need to make an effort. It was Jesus who said, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, that's an action, receives. He who seeks, that's an action, finds. He who knocks, that's an action, the door will be opened. And then the last thing, he gave credit to Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, it is true. In me, in Rob McCoy, dwells no good thing. I can of my own self do nothing. Anything good in my life is a result of Jesus Christ. Anything bad, I take full credit for. I'm gifted at sin. You don't have to teach me how to sin. You don't have to teach me how to do the wrong thing. I've known how to do that since I was born. That comes easy to me. I know how to reach the lowest common denominator just like water. I know how to find the lowest crevice. I know how to hang around with the worst people. I know how to do that. Nobody parties like a Scotsman. And that would be me right now, you know. And without the Lord, this is not what I would be doing. There wouldn't be a single person in this city who'd want to vote for me. Guaranteed. The amazing thing about nonpartisan local elections is you know the person. You shop with them. You see them. You know everything about their life. You live in a fishbowl, just like a pastor does. God says he takes the, the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He takes the weak things that confound the strength of the world. You know why he put me in the pulpit? Because I have to be here. I'm the weakest of all of you. I've got to live in a fishbowl. You've got to see everything about my life. You've got to come. That's, my house is an open, open door. People come in. You have to see every aspect of my life. That's why I don't even hide it anymore. It's like, here I am. You've heard everything from the pulpit in the course of my life. You've heard it all. And, and, and the reality is, the good things in my life are Jesus. He gets all the credit. Some people say, well, you, you know, congratulations, you won. I didn't win, we won. All I know is, statistically speaking, there was no way we could have won on Tuesday night after the initial vote drop happened. And then the second one dropped, we said, are you kidding me? And the third one dropped, we're like, wait a minute. We start to calculate the numbers and working it out. And we're like, there's a small likelihood within 24 votes that we, and then you move the, and if you, the, the planets align and then, you know, San Andreas Fault opens and, and we could, and we won by what? 52 votes? Over a man who's well known and another man who outspent us and, are you kidding me? 52 votes. I don't take credit for that. Ed Jones walked 9,000 homes. 9,000 homes. I'm just, I'm blown away by the fact that this victory, efforts of people, we, we put forth an effort. But guess who gets the credit? In my book, the Lord. That's not to say that I'm more righteous than Ed or more righteous than Dan. But I, I will tell you right now, the only reason why I'm standing here and the only reason why I was elected is because the Lord did it. Not because he orchestrated everyone to vote for me. 
It's because whatever people saw in me is what God's done already. He was healed. The man was motivated to give his testimony that Jesus healed him. At first he didn't know who he was. Then Jesus came and found him. He goes, that was the guy, that was the guy. And he gave credit to the Lord. And the fascinating thing about that, it was on the Sabbath. He's carrying his mat and they're, they're harassing him. I love this. People who think that we can find righteousness by observation of the law. If that is the case, there isn't a person in the room who's righteous. You probably broke the law coming here. Come on, come on. He was out sin, throw the first stone. I don't see him flying. You're not saved by observation of the law. There are none righteous, no, not one. And, and every one of us is broken. I, I was telling Nick, we, we had a really interesting conversation. And, and rightfully so, Nick's heart is want to keep the city. He wants to honor the sign ordinance and all those things. I love that about him. And, and we were in violation of the sign ordinances because we have people who are really spirited and just put them places. And the minute someone complained, we'd send somebody over and pull it up, say, okay, sorry. And I told Nick, I go, Nick, have you ever sped to get to work? Or you were late for something? And he's an honest man. He says, yes, I have. I said, you calculated that it was more important to get to where you were going to possibly get a ticket. And you weren't driving recklessly. You were just calculating the return on investment. I said, <laughs> I said Nick, I, I don't want to violate the sign orders, but quite frankly, I'll take the fine. And I, and, and I don't mean that haphazardly or, or you know, to avoid it. The reality is, there isn't anyone who's going to successfully accomplish this 100% of the time. We're all going to fail. And, and so when he's carrying his mat, these legalists look at him and go, it's the Sabbath. You don't do any work on the Sabbath. He's like, yes, I do. I don't know if they had techno music back then, but I think he was dancing with the mat. He goes, that guy told me I could. Who? Who gave you permission? The son of God. <laughs> First he goes, I don't know. The guy over there. Well, you're not allowed to do that. Who are you anyway? Why are you, what? Uh, wait, you're the guy who's there for 38 years. What do you, what do you? They, the law to them was power for oppression. They could care less that the man was walking after having been crippled 38 years. They didn't want Jesus to have the power to be able to, to take the lame and have them walk and to, and to set the captives free. The law to them was oppression so that they could have the power. Jesus came, came that, I, that they may know the truth and the truth would set them free. They're looking at this, this authority and this law as oppressiveness and power over the people. For Christ, it was, if you seek this, this will be fine. If you're accountable to God, you don't need prisons. The prison rate drops. We saw the revivals in Wales and, and, and the barbershop quartets came because policemen had nothing to do so they'd go and sing in churches because nobody was breaking the law anymore after the revival. They had to retrain the pack animals in the mines because the, the mules wouldn't operate because the, the people wouldn't cuss at them anymore. They had to retrain them to take orders that didn't include expletives. <laughs> they had the highest number of bankruptcies um, in, in Wales because all the bars shut down. That's what revival is. People would want to use the law to oppress, and, and Christ uses a law to change an entire culture. 
And they said, who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man had healed, he had no idea who it was, and Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Oh, did you notice the word again on that one? I don't know how he got crippled, but it was something he wouldn't, shouldn't have been doing. He says, don't you want to avoid that next time? There'd probably been some disobedience in his younger years that caused him this lameness, whatever it was. He didn't, want, he didn't want the man to spend an eternity apart from God. Jesus had healed him. We come to the close of the message, and I, I just want to share this with you. These are the two things that, to me, are important for us to take communion in the remaining moments. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And I, I would close with this idea. Why are these stories in the Bible? Why, why does the scriptures contain all these? All these healings. The purpose of these stories is not to tell us what Jesus did. The purpose of the stories is not to tell us what Jesus did. The purpose is to tell us what he's doing now. He's healing. Do you want to be made well? Romans 15, 4 says, everything was written in the past that was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He wasn't doing it just for them in the story. He's doing it for us today. It's not a book for us to look back into the past and look at Jesus with amazement so that we can move forward in faith. And then finally, the God who spoke still speaks. Max Lucado wrote this. He says, the God who spoke still speaks. The God who forgave still forgives. The God who came still comes into our world. He comes to move the stones that we cannot move. I love this idea that this morning, in a sense, we're all handicapped by sin. We can't heal ourselves. Max Lucado writes, all the suggested cures of this world are futile, but the blood-stained hands of Jesus reach out to us. And as we prepare to take communion, remember Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. There's healing power in the touch of Jesus. What do you want? Well, then you have to stop blaming others. You gotta put forth an effort. And you gotta give all credit to Jesus. And Jesus said in relation to communion, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It was his body broken and his blood shed for the remission of our sins. You receive Christ as your savior, you, you're made well. We're gonna die of the last disease we had, but you don't die as a Christian who's trusted in the, the salvation of God. You fall asleep and awaken in the image of Christ in God's presence, and all of your sin has been covered by his blood. He paid the penalty. You can try to earn God's favor by observing the law. We don't observe the law as Christians because we have to. We observe the, the law of God because we want to. We love him. I don't go home every night to my wife because I wear a wedding ring. I go home every night to my wife because I love her. God has a love relationship with us, not a capricious relationship with us. He's not a God we need to appease. He's a God who's forgiven and a God who, who beckons us to come. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, I've come that you might have rest. He's come to forgive you. He's come to heal you. What do you want? It's here.
Everything you need is right here. Jesus. We're going to take communion together and celebrate that. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And Lord, as we prepare to take communion, we recognize it's symbolic. There's, There's nothing magical in the bread and the cup. But in the symbolism, we recognize the power of the God and who it represents. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your stripes we've been healed. We do want to be made well. We're tired of blaming others. And we're willing to do whatever you ask us to do. And we will give you all the glory. And with that, like the man at the pool of Bethesda, we will walk. So, Lord, I pray your healing touch upon all who are present as they put forth this effort to rise from their seat and to come and take the communion of the living God that they would be healed. In Jesus' name, amen. The ushers are going to dismiss you by rows. You come down the side aisles. They'll give you the cup. You can take the bread. This is gluten-free if you need it. You go back to your seat by the center aisle and you sit down and you take communion at your leisure. We don't do it all at once. You do it on your own while we're singing. Just remember the order. You take the bread first because the body had to be broken before the blood could be shed. It's symbolic. If you screw it up, you're still going to heaven. All right? Let's take communion.